Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to the HQ of Lloyd Banking Group. Uh, we're here to talk about entrepreneurship. Uh, I have with me um, four very interesting people who have different perspectives on this subject. Uh, I'm going to introduce them very briefly and then each of them uh, in turn are going to say a few words and we'll start a question and answer session. So on my far right is Stephen Chambers. Uh, he's the director of the uh, MBA Side Business School in Oxford and he's also chairman there of the Skoll Centre for Social Entrepreneurship. Um, next to him on my immediate right is Sam Roddick. She runs her own business, Coco Demer. Uh, on my immediate left is Peter Higgins, who's the co-founder and chairman of Charles Tilwit, the shirt retailer, an ex-chairman of Kath Kitson. Uh, and on his left is Ollie Barrett, who is the founder of Make Your Mark with a Tenor and one of the uh, brains behind Startup Britain. Um, so I think over to you, Stefan, for a few thoughts, whatever you want, on the subject of entrepreneurship. Thank you. Um, I'm from a business school, so if anyone wants to uh, throw bricks at business schools, I'm probably the person who, uh, who should be catching them later on. But <laughs> Can you hear me now? <laughs> okay, is the sound on? Can you hear me now? Hear me now? Okay, I'll, I'll, I will... I'll talk while the sound gets fixed, and if you, if you lose me at the back, then yell and I'll try and speak up. Um, I'm from a business school. If you want to throw bricks at business school, chuck them at me. I'll try and catch them later. But before I do that, I want to, I want to um, make a few, um, I hope radical and I hope useful suggestions about entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is, of course, important. It is, of course, the engine for economies, national, regional, um, and local. But actually, it's a lot more than that. It's the means by which we uh, ensure our survival. So some things have changed quite radically in our generation. And we can call, let's call them for the sake of simplicity, globalization. Ideas, money, people, and diseases, and pollution um, travel more easily than they ever have done before. Anything that happens in one place has repercussions in other places. It's not always possible to predict what those repercussions are. And the costs of doing business are not properly expressed in the price of business. Okay. This notion that the economists call externalities is profoundly important because it means that if we are proposing to do new, better, more business, and I propose that we do because I absolutely believe that the more trade there is, the more business there is, the more commercial activity there is, the more people are taken out of poverty. It's been one of the signal successes um, of the last 100 years that progressively more people are taken out of poverty by increases in trade. However, those benefits are unequally distributed. And here's the really big, however, we now face threats of an existential nature that we've not 
faced before. Okay, partly they're a consequence of globalization and, and partly they're a consequence of population. By existential threat, I mean things that threaten the entire um, ability of, uh, of humans to coexist and the planet to survive. So you can make your own list of things that are existential, but let's start with climate change, food security, poverty, public health, and pandemics. Okay, that's, a, that's a reasonable list. You could probably all make your own list. We know that governments can't fix this stuff because they haven't, and working in concert is too difficult. We know that aid agencies can't fix this stuff because they don't, um, and we know that, um, uh, that individuals can't fix this stuff. So the agency that has traditionally been missing in the development of radical solutions to large problems and in the creation of collaborations in respect to those large problems is entrepreneurship. It's the kind of innovation that thrives when the incentives are commercial. When the incentives are both commercial and planetary, you get really interesting solutions. And the most obvious uh, example of those kinds of solutions is microfinance. You probably all know the story of Grameen Bank. Um, you probably all know that Mohammed Yunus was puzzled why people couldn't get loans, small loans. So he went out and discovered that retail banking institutions in, as it happened, Bangladesh, couldn't understand why you would give a loan to somebody who had no visible means of, in, uh, of support and had nothing to securitize that loan against and no stable income. And what he discovered was that default rates when lending in small amounts, overwhelmingly they're not exclusively to women, in order for those women to do more interesting, innovative business activities. The default rates were much lower than the comparable retail banking default rates. And that created a massive industry um, which has spread across a number of continents and is, the, is an, exactly the kind of example of what I'm talking about. I'm also talking about entrepreneurship being um, internalized by organizations. So while I'm absolutely a fan of lone entrepreneurs, I'm absolutely a fan uh, of economies continuing to be based on the very large number of people who take personal risks to do new things. I think there's also an entrepreneurial imperative in large organizations because you can be sure that the costs that are not properly expressed today will end up being internalized. They will end up they will end up as liabilities on the balance sheets of large organizations. If you have anything to do with glass, you have something to do with water. If you have anything to do with construction, you have something to do with water. If you uh, rely on complex supply chains that are globalized, you have something to do with migration and poverty and justice um, and girls' education and so on and so on. So almost everything that almost anybody does is implicated in the profoundly social returns on commercial activity. And it's the duty, in my view, of active competition in large corporations to internalize those costs preemptively and to say what, what will happen when through taxation, through regulation, through consumer behavior, um, uh, we have to express properly the cost of things that we're not currently expressing. How do we innovate our way around that and out-compete? So, in short, my view is that entrepreneurship has always been desirable. It continues to be desirable, but is now imperative. 
It's imperative because the threats that we face are existential, that the incentives for being innovative and entrepreneurial are therefore no longer only commercial, and the incentives <coughs> to be an entrepreneur are no longer only incentives that apply to risk-taking, extraordinary individuals, but to all institutions and organizations doing almost anything. Thank you very much. Rousing stuff. Uh, thanks. Um, hi. I feel like I'm on a platform which I don't really belong. <laughs> Personally, I have my own business, but I am an activist, and everything I do is centered around activism. So I started my business to really create a platform to transform the way we as a society um, relate to sex. And I wanted to inject words like love, intimacy, and ethics into uh, a kind of an industry that is really abhorrent on many levels. And instead of like joining that industry, I wanted to create an alternative industry. So I come from the loins of some great business people. Um, I, I was completely unemployable as a child, and I utilized my rebellion to kind of, well, I, I utilized my causes to justify my rebellion in many ways. I was, uh, went to Nepal at the age of 16 where I set up and helped set up one of my parents' first fur trade uh, projects in Nepal. And I think that's where I found that where business really is unintimidating and it's really a state of survival. And I wasn't, I never worked in my parents' company. I got fired from the body shop at 16. So um, when I opened my business, I wasn't really aware that that's what I was doing. I wanted to basically have a dialogue and that was the only way to legitimize it. So I did something very naively, um, and out of it, I did the impossible. I attacked it like it was a creative project, one that was more about communication than profit or loss, and I knew nothing, nothing. I didn't even know how to do like an end-of-day cashing up form from my pills. So what did I do? I basically asked everybody I knew questions, and that's how I got my education. And I didn't, I just acquired my knowledge. And I was mentored throughout the whole process. And even today, I feel like I'm continuing my education on that front. Now, I have been awarded a lot of awards for the groundbreaking creative kind of communications. I've won like six, seven, eight like Golden Lion Awards in Cannes for advertising. And I've been awarded the notion of having an international brand with Prop 2 shops, essentially. So I've got a cottage industry that has been considered an international brand that has got me on TV, it's got me on radio, it's got me um, being studied and um, really being attributed more than actually what I have financially achieved, to be honest. So I think that is my success in what I have done, is that I've managed to kind of create an international brand with a meager kind of income. And so, um, but what I have done is I have challenged our relationship to sex on an ethical level, really underpinning it with a notion that we have to be more responsible in the way that we approach the subject of sex and create some healthy boundaries. Because obviously, as we know, the sex industry is responsible for some heinous global crimes, whether it's through trafficking or through the porn industry. And really, we need. Um, an alternative to that. All of my products are ethically made, and from that, um, I have created 
uh, an incredible kind of penetration within our culture, for want of a better word, um, <laughs> to really open up to the fact that actually women are sexual beings that actually have an incredible sex drive, that have a desire to be recognized as such, but under their own terms, with their own language. They, you know, and that has to be injected with a sense of beauty. Now, this Coco de Mer, what it has provided me is a platform to do my activism. So after going to the DRC and working with some of the top creators around the world to tackle issues like rape being used as a, a, a systematic weapon of war and to work with some of, I mean, I've just been donated 200, uh, 500 grand worth of free talent from Hollywood to make a five-minute film that I'm attaching to a petition and working with every NGO within this country, which is going to be launched in June. And I think that for me, what has my enterprise given me and what does it do for me? For me, um, being an entrepreneur is a problem-solving issue. I utilize it as a creative way to kind of tackle issues that I care about, to make a transformative change within our society, to really create a world um, to become a better place. I do believe that at the heart of it, business right, has to be approached like we approach our democratic government. We have to realize that how we invest in our business is actually a vote to their behavior. And I really, one of the biggest calls that I make is that consumers start to become involved in the way that businesses run and what kind of economic choices that they are uh, essentially making through the way they trade. Because actually, like my mother and my father had said before me, that we have to put humanity above profit and with a healthy, safe society, we actually do have a better and more stable economy. I've got five minutes, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you. Um, I'm ashamed to say I've never ever read a book about entrepreneurship and I didn't even know I was an entrepreneur for quite a long time uh, after I'd started. But I'll just give you a sort of personal viewpoint of, of what I think it means. Um, in 1990, I was a management consultant at Bain & Company, a US firm, and I was advising uh, DHL <coughs> and Guinness about their global strategy. I knew absolutely nothing about their global strategy. I, I was overpaid uh, and, and, and under-talented. And, and one day at lunch, uh, my now business partner, Nick Wheeler, said to me, um, look, why don't we sell shirts by mail order? And um, he, I mean, we knew nothing about shirts, and we knew even less about mail order. Um, but it just seemed like a great idea. And so off we went, and somehow stumbled into, 20 years later, we made a £100 million business for whatever, I don't know, making lots of mistakes along the way. Now, my father, who, who ran a business school, was a, was a professor of business studies, said to me, you are insane. Um, you, you know, here are all the statistics about all the businesses that have failed. Uh, you're taking the most huge risk. But, but I figured actually that what entrepreneurship is, is actually taking a calculated risk. And Nick and I, like good consultants, we sat down and we worked out what made us different. What could we be the best in the world at? And so we very simply worked out that M&S were at 30 pounds, and German Street were at 40 pounds, so we'd sell our shirts for 34.50. Now, if we'd been really clever, we'd have sold them for 34.95, but we didn't know everything. And so we, we worked really hard to differentiate ourselves from the competition. Now, at the same time, in the same year, almost within a month, a guy called Charles started a business as well, and another guy called Michael started his business too. And I've always wondered, why did we choose shirts? I think it's because nobody else actually was that boring as to go into shirts. But uh, Charles Dunstan started at the same time. He chose phones, and his business is 20 times bigger than mine. And then Michael Dell chose computers, 
and his business is 200 times bigger than mine. But of course, more people were doing phones and more people were doing computers, so it was a much tougher environment. But for us, we chose shirts. No one else wanted to do it, so we did it. So entrepreneurship is a calculated risk. What I think it also is, it's, uh, I call it immediacy. Well, and what do I mean by immediacy? I think it's about decision making. And uh, if you're in big business or government or you're a consultant and you have a great idea, two months later after 16 meetings, something might happen. Or it may never happen at all. It just doesn't happen. But in a small to medium-sized business, you can make a decision and something will happen. So for at Cap Kidston, which I joined in 2006 as executive chairman, if we were down on budget at the trading meeting on Monday, I would say, well, look, why don't we do an email, 24 hours, 3 p.m.P., and off we go. And at 1 o'clock, the email would go out, and at 101, the sales would come in. So you have immediacy from decision-making. The other thing is, uh, and I'll change the acronym, is just bloody do it. There are so many people in big business. I've employed people from M&S, John Lewis, Procter & Gamble. You tell them to do something, and they hold a meeting. And then they have another meeting. And then in the end, it just doesn't happen. Just bloody do it. So that's what entrepreneurship means as well. Um, <clears throat> it does, of course, mean freedom. It means you can work when you like. Uh, you can do what you like. You can have as many holidays as you like. But of course, what happens is when you start, you do 100-hour weeks. And just to give you an example from my time at Charles Terry, Nick and I started in, in a sort of shop in, on the Labrick uh, Labr Grove just off the Portobello. As we got better and better, we had our two little desks pushed further over, and all the shirts were just taking up the room. You couldn't move the shirts. So I thought, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to saw a hole in the floor. And so I did. I got my saw out, and I saw a hole, and I got someone to make me a ladder. And we decided, well, who's going to be in the warehouse downstairs, and who's going to be in the call center? Anyway, I was a junior partner. So I was in the warehouse, and he was in the call center. It was great fun. It was great fun. Um, but obviously, with freedom, um, you have the responsibility of paying the bills, paying the staff, and the staff get to love what they do. And so you're actually responsible for their careers now. But what is also the most important part about freedom is let them make mistakes. And I think, you know, God, I've made so many mistakes. I'm just going to tell you one just, just quickly where Charles said, we decided to go to the German market. You know, the Germans, they love English kids. They like mail order. Let's do it. So we, all we had to do was do a black plate change, make it into German, send the catalog off. So on Monday morning, I got my UK brochure. The German one was just arriving. And on the front cover, beautiful shirt, lovely tie, and a pair of sil sterling silver Spitfire cufflinks. <laughs> now, you've got to say that actually the Germans have a great sense of humor because we sold 60 pairs of Spitfire <laughs> And at that time, that was a lot of cufflinks. So it's about making mistakes. And, and when I arrived, God, I hope that's not me, bloody hell. I'm sorry, that's just appalling. Um, I make mistakes all the time. Um, when I arrived, it was a £7 million business, and I guess what was I able to do as an entrepreneur, I'd made all the mistakes that they were about to make, so I was able to stop them making mistakes. But, but we had a mentality, we had an entrepreneurial spirit where it was okay to make mistakes. Just go and do it. If it doesn't work, that's fine. Just don't make the same mistake again. And four years on, we managed to sell it for £106 million. So we kind of got it right along the way. Um, what else does it mean? Uh, yeah, you take risks, so you, you would hope to get great rewards. But when I started, I didn't really do it for rewards. I did it because I actually wanted to do something, um, take on SoundPoint, something worthwhile. I actually wanted to create some wealth, and I wanted to create jobs. Uh, as someone who'd been in the, you know, I guess I came through the Thatcher era, uh, you know, I'm an unashamed capitalist. But I think if it exists, the term, I would like to think I'm a paternal capitalist. But actually, what, what I really love is creating jobs. 
for people and seeing them improve. So I have one guy who's a university dropout. He joined the call center at Charles Tirrett. We paid for him to do his MBA at, uh, through the OU, uh, and he's now on the operating board. Uh, a girl who started on reception at Cass Kidston, she's now very senior in the buying team. So people have been able to improve, and that's been one of the great uh, joys for me. But uh, finally, what is entrepreneurship about? Actually, it's having fun. It's, it's, it's what makes me get out of bed in the morning. Uh, I can't wait for Sunday evening, because on Monday morning, I get all those results, and I love to see the results. And you know, you spend a third of your life or more working, and so you've got to enjoy it. It's great fun. But just going back to risk, um, everyone thinks, yeah, it's taking risks. I think it's a calculated risk. If you have some money to invest, if I have money to invest, would I invest in RBX, BP, Dixon's, HMV, and so on? That's a much greater risk. I'd rather back myself and screw it up than allow someone else to do it. So if I just have to encapsulate the whole thing of, of what I think entrepreneurship is to me, uh, it, it's a feeling, and, it's a, and, and the feeling is one of, uh, it just makes me leap out of bed in the morning. Although, now I've got a bit older, it's kind of more of a dull thud. Thank you. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you very much. Thank you, Luke. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I wanted to talk a little bit just about the scheme that I've been involved in since it started, which is all about tenors. Uh, not uh, Placido Domingo-style tenors, I might add, but uh, £10 notes in schools and colleges in particular. And it's a very, very simple idea, and they're the only sort of ideas that I'm very good at, I think, um, which is hand a child a £10 note and give them a month to see what they can turn it into. And the urge there is to turn it into as much money as you can and to make as much of a difference as you can. And since we started that, it has impacted 50,000 uh, young people, and we think that will grow to 250,000 young people over the next two or three years. So an incredibly um, simple idea. But the thing I wanted to talk about when given the excuse to think about entrepreneurship was some of the things that I've noticed in schools and colleges and the lessons from there that I think maybe we might be able to talk about in the sort of wider uh, UK environment as well. And I'm in a really privileged position because I'm allowed to go into these schools and colleges and I'm not a parent. Um, I'd love to be one day, but I'm not. And so in many cases, I'm going into this school environment for the first time since I was a pupil. And there are some things that really strike you, and I'd be very interested to know in the audience if you can relate to this, um, but in no particular order. Um, number one, I think that young people's attitude to strangers is really worrying in that they're brought up not to trust them and to see them as dangerous. And I don't think they're ever told the secret, which is that strangers are not dangerous and that they are the secret to doing anything you want to do. And I see a very, very distinct lack of ability to deal with people you haven't met. And to me, there are some seeds there that get sown at a very, very early age, which when they start to grow, are very, very harmful um, for the whole uh, country. So our attitude to strangers. The second thing is, and I don't know why this is, I'm sure there's some very good reasons, we don't seem to be taught about money at school. Why is that? Why is it that when I ask a child what they guess a tenor will turn into an interest that school will be, often they'll get a fiver extra, often they'll get an extra two pounds. Why is it? Now, there are some fantastic programs, financial literacy, I'm sure lawyers are involved in some of those. So there are programs out there. But why isn't that across the board? Isn't that a bit weird, number two? Number three, in the last school I went into two weeks ago, there's a big fat book on business studies A-level. 
And I said to the teacher, this is a big fat book, I'd love to have a copy of this. <laughs> you know, I could learn a lot from this book. Is there a practical element to the business studies A-level? It will surprise some of you to know and not surprise others to know the answer was no. So we have a business studies A-level without a practical element to it. And I find that a bit odd. Um, so there were some things to think about there. The fourth thing, just going into schools, was that, and this has nothing to do with what I had to say, but just my very presence there as a business person in a school seemed to, in a very small way, cheer them up a bit. And so what I'm going to say today is, if you don't already do it, and I bet three courses and more of you do it anyway, but please do track down some of the stunning programs out there, and there are absolutely loads, from Business Dynamics, The Young Enterprise, to Nifty. Uh, Tenor is one of many, many, many. But do embrace those. So they're just some of the most fantastic experiences to go in and make stuff happen. <clears throat> so those are some sort of oddities that I started to draw out, because I think if we could start to change the way we deal with strangers, and there I can't agree um, with Nick that networks are the enemy, um, because in terms of social mobility, I think they are the big secret and the friend of social mobility. And I think that we need to turn the attitude towards strangers and networks on its head, actually, particularly from a very, very young age. Um, we need to start talking about money. We need to start uh, doing very practical things. We need to start going into our schools and colleges from a very, very early age. Now, very briefly, just in a final minute, I've been involved as one of eight private individuals in something called Startup Britain. And I'm not going to give it a terrific plug, but I'm only just going to say two of the reasons I got involved. One is that I do think big business has a role to play in supporting small business. And that might be through making really practical offers and deals. And it might be through investing themselves in programs which support entrepreneurship and enterprise, which programs like Startup Britain can then shine a light on and say, look what IBM is doing. Look what Microsoft is doing to inspire that next generation. The final point is on this word of entrepreneurship. Um, when Luke and I met briefly the other day, I said, and I'm not afraid to say it again today, I don't call myself an entrepreneur. Um, and that's partly because, and I'll be shot down in flames for this, I'm sure, but I don't consider myself to have made, and it's a fact, I haven't made lots of money. I haven't made millions of pounds. And so my only question to the room today would be, if someone with an ego as big as mine, and someone with a mouth as big as mine, shies away from that word, how many people are we putting off with that word? And is there any merit in just talking about people who start things? The idea that you don't have to be a dragon to work for yourself. Is there anything about the language that we're using to describe entrepreneurship, which is off-putting to millions of people? When I go into the classroom and I say, who would think about starting a business one day, Every single time, at least three quarters of the room put their hands up and something happens to dissuade them from that. And so I think we need to be careful, not about definitions, but about how we present ourselves just to make sure it isn't putting off the person at the back of the class who could be doing what they want to do in a few years' time. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Um, so just to follow up on that last point, um, Stefan, do you think the culture in our country towards entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship and starting your own business has got better. Yes, in short, yes. I think that the, even this conversation couldn't have happened 20 years ago. It might have happened 10 years ago, but, it probably, but I don't think it could have happened 20 years ago. So I think it's got better, but I think it's also got worse in the, in the, in the sense that Ollie is talking about. 
you know, how many pianists would there be if pianists had to be Mozart? You know, and, and the, problem, the problem with this entrepreneurship conversation is that we tend to mystify what we mean by entrepreneur. We tend to personify it. We tend to create a, a, a myth of a heroic individual, okay, usually with a beard and an airline. And, and, and that's not helpful. That's not helpful because if, if it means anything, it means anybody doing anything that is innovative, that is new, that is creative, that is, that is commercially or economically or socially um, uh, creative and constructive. So I'm absolutely with Ollie on the, on the we, we should demystify it. But I think we have made a lot of progress, yes. Good. Peter, what do you think about role models? Do you think we could do better? Well, you know, I sort of used to think about Germans as people who were sort of balding, bit of grey hair, slightly overweight and so on. And I looked at myself in the mirror and realised that I am now that person. But, but I do wish that when we started in 1990 that we'd had someone with a bit of grey hair who'd made all the mistakes we were about to make. And I think taking on all these points about sort of mentoring and so on, I think if one could somehow have a situation where people who've done it before made the same mistakes could take those younger people and, and inspire them, and I think that would be a, a fantastic thing. And it, it, you know, God, when you made the mistakes, it's just easy to spot people doing it again. Just don't do it. So, yeah. And Sam, do you think there are a lot more women now thinking about starting their own business and actually doing it? Um, I think there are, but I think the problem is with women is that there is a lack of confidence and a lack of self-validating. They don't validate themselves for having... You know, business has got a great mystique to it, and a lot of people don't realize they already have the skills. And being a mother, you've probably got a lot of the skills you need to run a business. Um, I think that really, what I love the fact that I was mentored by my father, who has this very simple common sense spending versus the how much is coming in. And it's about balancing that. And the rest is really kind of basic common wisdom that you can apply to the rest of your life. So for me, I, I'm passionate about women getting involved with business and also kind of mentoring uh, women in business into giving them that kind of platform to take a quantum leap within their own kind of confidence to say, yes, you know, they can multitask, they can run a household, they can have their kids, and they can run a business. Um, so I'm up for it. Good. And Ollie, are you broadly optimistic, having sort of been around schools and launched Startup Britain, that actually there are a lot of young people, or indeed people of any age, who are up for starting their business and that this could be part of the cure for things like public sector job, lo job losses? Um, on, on one level, I'm massively optimistic because I see the purpose of schools that you sort of, in a, in a funny way, sorry if that's me, um, that you, you can't wait to leave. You know, you, you love your family, but you can't wait to leave because you're so alive um, to the sense of what's out there. And um, so I'm very optimistic about the number of people I see who want to do their own thing. I think we've got major, major, major challenges. What are um, First and foremost, and I'm sorry if this sounds unpolitically correct, but reading and writing is important. A lot of the young people I meet cannot speak. You know, they have severe challenges when it comes to communicating with other people. And that's not the stranger danger point I was making earlier. As much as the ability to stand up in a group of their peers and communicate their ideas, unless we can get the people coming through schools and colleges in this country communicating at a much, much higher level, I think we've got a major problem. That really strikes me when I spend time, as I do three or four times a year in the States. Um, so, so to a certain extent, I'm optimistic. I would like to, to, see, to be seen more, particularly in colleges and universities, as an option. 
you know, if I'd have gone into my, and I bet things have changed a lot in 10 years, if I'd have gone into my careers advisor at university, and I ended up sadly dropping out of university, if I'd have gone in and said I'm thinking of starting up my own business, I have a suspicion back then that that would have been greeted with a certain sense of horror. Um, and I would like to see working for yourself as certainly represented on the milk round, if not have its own mini milk round dedicated to it. And Stefan, do you think you can teach entrepreneurship in places like universities? Uh, yes, in short. I don't think you can create entrepreneurs. I think people who are cursed or blessed with a conviction that this is what they want to do don't go anywhere near anything, anywhere that could teach them how to do this. But I think that leaves the rest of us, and the rest of us have, in my view, an obligation to be a whole lot more entrepreneurial. So it's not about entrepreneurs, it's about entrepreneurial behaviors. You know, that's, the, that's the single most kind of democratizing um, analysis of this field, because we have to get away from the notion of entrepreneurs. We also have to think a little bit about incentives. I mean, you know, the terrible thing about incentives is that they work, and we've just lived through a, a, an extraordinary transfer uh, of wealth into private hands, the majority of which has gone into private hands in non-risk-bearing employment. So, you know, you could argue that some of the smartest of several generations have, as it were, ducked out of any kind of entrepreneurial obligation because they've been too well fed. Um, and that may not be a good thing. Sorry to say that in these hallowed halls. Um, so, one or two questions, perhaps. There's a lady here. Sophie Gunter, I work with EI and other, I have a portfolio consultancy. Um, a couple of points. One is that I think we're, a point to make is that we all work a long time these days. Um, retirement's going to go back even further. So I would just suggest to Ollie that maybe it's not a bad thing to start one's career in, an, in a structured organization and get the training and the skills because it's very difficult to go back to it. If you're driven, you're Richard Branson, you know, Sam Roddick, you, you, you are that special person who has a, a force within. But for the people who need to acquire the skills, I think that a time within a big structured corporate could be very useful, especially if they're not getting it at school. And if we're going to work into a 90, then let's get the skills along the way and maybe learn those things and become the entrepreneurial bit later on. I just come back on that one. Okay. Yes. Sorry, just, just come back on that one because I mean I saw you about you know I taught Latin and Greek, which was obviously very useful for making shirts, and then uh, I went to Bailey Company for three years and I did get a fantastic training, and so I thought when well, I go and start my own business, it'd be great because I'll know it all, and actually I just knew absolutely nothing, and and I think you can really only do it by doing it and by having somebody there to help you do it. So. I think you're probably right. It might be worth trying to earn a bit of money first and get something on your CV in case it all goes, you know, wrong. Uh, yeah, you can have that in business too. But I, just want, I just want to say, like, I have, I have made every major, major mistake, but actually, as I said, my learning ground has been huge. I haven't acquired this information just from my own experiences. I have learned from incredible people who've come to incredible careers from structures. And I think it's a necessity to make sure that you do employ people who have had those trainings so they can, your risk ones and your immediate responses can be outweighed or kind of in, 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 in fighting with those that have come from those corporate structures. Okay, the gentleman there with glasses, he had his hand up. Um, thank you, Tony Gillen from the Institute of Ideas. Um, my question is, I'm getting a bit confused about uh, what we're talking about in terms of entrepreneurship. 
so I would like if you could say what you mean by entrepreneurial behaviours and justify we sh why we should all have more of them. I'm not convinced. I thought I knew what was an entrepreneur, that somebody who employed other people in a business that they grew to make profit. And that seemed like quite a good thing to me. You, you seem to be saying something different, and I don't understand what it is, and I'm not sure if I agree with it. Well, I have to say, I completely agree with you. And I think the whole concept of entrepreneurship is the biggest load of old codswallop I've ever <laughs> And the fact is, read my article yesterday in the FT. Big companies can't be entrepreneurial if they try. And the very concept is ludicrous. But perhaps you'd like to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's certainly true that they find it harder. But, but, but that's the wrong question. The, 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 the right question is, do they need to do things differently given the nature of the world? Okay. Do, they have, do, do the people who run them have an obligation to their shareholders to um, meet some of the big challenges? Now, I would argue that simply doing what they do is inadequate. It's inadequate ethically it's in, and it's inadequate commercially. So either you just assume that lots of them are going to go bust and this is just a kind of normal historical cycle, or you say the nature of the problems that corporations are implicated in take water, okay, are simply too big for executives to uh, ignore. Okay, now, that's not the same as saying large companies can behave like small companies, that the boardroom is full of people with airlines and beards. It's, that, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the nature of the world is now of, of, of such a level of critical threat that co and corporations are now so profoundly implicated in both the solutions and the problems, that simply doing what they used to do without regard for the cost that will get internalized is inadequate. Now, if that's for entrepreneurship, which I don't think it is, then I profoundly disagree with you. I thought entrepreneur was a crazy thing. I thought what I thought. What about the chat with the glasses over there? Have his hand up before. Maurice Mendoza. Um, actually, I was just picking up the point Stefan made because um, I, I just wanted to ask, um, in, in the light of all the constraints that uh, we all face in terms of resources, water, and so on, um, there is a there is a small body of uh, business people who are now saying that we have to rethink the way organisations are made, and one one of which was uh, Ian Cheshire, uh, Chief Executive of Kingfisher, and I just wondered what people on the panel thought of this, his quote here is, instead of the goal of maximum linear growth in GDP, we should be thinking of maximum well-being for minimal planetary input. And um, he's raised certain issues, and I know it would take them a long time to achieve it at B&Q, but to lease their products rather than sell them. So they're responsible for the recycling or disposable of the resources, and it's not wasted. Who wants to answer that one? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, that to me is a fascinating question because when I go into schools and I ask the kids what percentage of their profits they're thinking of giving away, um, often their first answer will be all of them. Um, it tends to level out for some reason, I don't know why, at about 40%. And yet in business, people will proudly boast of giving 1% of their profit away. So I don't know what happens between 
school and possibly children haven't heard of something called tax. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so all I was going to say on that was that it is entirely in their mindset. And when I ask them to conjure up ideas which make money and then separately come up with another set of ideas which make a difference, it's not unusual for them to find the second lot of ideas um, easier. And they have no, um, they have no um, problem with that. I just think um, I was totally inspired by Charlie Mayfield's point earlier about this combination of profits and partners and customers as well. And uh, that's why the privately owned businesses of the country, I think, are in a position to take much greater risks in some of those cases, which is why I think we have to look to them to inspire us. Um, okay, I don't think it is about giving away profits. It's actually about how you trade. And I think that has to underpin basic behaviours of us as individual human beings, us as, a, you know, a country, and us as business, we have to occupy the same values and the same space in terms of treating sustainably, and that's where our economy has to be based. Therefore, conflict minerals in the Congo cannot actually be an excuse to maximise profit, simply because of that you are bypassing all of the humane ways of trading with militias. It's unacceptable, and it's completely undemocratic and it fuels wars that actually lead the world into a state of destruction and economically it is unneeded. That is the only issue. Now then when acts of generosity and kindness come in, that should be superfluous because underneath it we have to underpin every decision on, on a business level with a state of humanity and simple values. Mm. Can I ask you a question? Do you, do you think that giving away profit is a, is a bit of a waste of money. No, should, the, should the company just reinvest it in doing a good job and being a good company? I think we have to apply the same human value, and that should be unarguable, right? So therefore, we should, can't see companies outside of the realms of government. We have to treat them as government in the way that they actually interact with other, um, other communities. Mm -hmm. So I think that is actually all we need to start talking about. And then we can make these brilliant decisions about investing into great acts of charity. Right? <coughs> and that's my, my premise. Another question. Excuse me. Boss, she's allowed to ask questions. Julia Hobsbawm, Editorial Intelligence. Uh, I'm loving this day so much. Ollie, I need to take issue with two things you've said. One I agree with. Are these questions? There are questions. <laughs> Look, please tell me you don't really think we need to waste a single second rebranding the word enterprise or entrepreneurial. That's completely mad, surely. Any word or meaning can be devalued and can be recast. That isn't the point. Equally, they do that with the word networking. Mm -hmm. And I agree with your point that you know, Nick Clegg has done us all a favor in the networking business by making an ill-advised remark because it focuses on your point, which is how have we managed to get to a situation where something as fundamental as eye contact and communication and indeed curiosity is missing from the cadre of people who come out of school? How did that happen? And how can you then possibly have an entrepreneurial nation where Stefan's points about attitudes as well as the specifics of going into business. Because not everybody is entrepreneurial like us and 
you know, you have to like making money, even if you want to do so ethically and to do nice things with your profits. But you can be entrepreneurially minded and open minded. And how can you begin yep. if you're not <clears throat> basically skilled? Yep. Very briefly, Luke, may I? On, on the second point, it seems to me that for many people, school is just a series of gates you go through where the end after the final gate is a job. Yeah? So where the pressure has to come from is the employer at the far end to say these are skills and these are things which we value and we demand, and only then will stuff start filtering back into schools to say, blimey, if there are no jobs handed out to people who haven't got these skills, then that needs to have a knock-on effect. That's the second thing. On the first one about rebranding, I think if you're not careful, the word rebranding gets confused with logos on a tin of paint. My point is just that choosing our words is free, and we should be more careful about the words we choose to describe the activities we've been talking about. Very good. Next question. That gentleman there, glasses again. Hello, my name is Herbert Marsh-Williams. Um, just going on from what Ollie was saying, um, now I'm a firm believer in sort of catching while they're young. So in terms of um, inspiring entrepreneurship, trying to inspire it amongst young people, we talk about doing it in schools, and I'm, I'm, you know, I like what you're doing in schools, Ollie. My wife is a teacher. If you were to, and we often talk actually about um, trying to get the pupils to think more about business and less about, you know, oh, I just want this job, I want that job, or whatever. But if you were to say to her, okay, what you need to do is more stuff in school in relation to entrepreneurship or business, she would say, well, we've got so much on our plates at the moment, so much administration, so much work, we just haven't got time for that kind of thing. Now, I wonder whether, whilst it's right to talk about bringing these things into schools, whether we need to think a little bit more clearly about how it's done. Because if we simply dump more on the teachers who've had an awful lot on their plates in any event, it's maybe not going to work. And the flip side of the coin is, we never talk about the parents. It's always about the schools or the teachers. But I mean, the parents should have, or in fact do have, so much influence over their children. Perhaps that's in somewhere or other where we should be starting. Well, I have to say I agree that it's been my observation over two or more decades working and looking entrepreneurs that the single most powerful influence is normally having parents who are themselves entrepreneurs. Mm. And uh, it's a hugely influential. And a great many successful entrepreneurs have had someone in their background who's a significant role model and influence on them. Uh, seeing how someone at home could, rather than go to a job nine to five, but they could take risks and it would work and you know, failure wasn't the end of the world and so forth and so on and all those difficult lessons that are essential uh, because I spoke uh, earlier this week to a group of um, undergraduates and immediate postgraduates who are all thinking about starting their own business and one of them asked a, a question that clearly resonated with all the others which is, but what about the risks? You know, and they obviously imagine that at the age of 21 the threats are terrible and actually for most people at the age of 21 there are no risks. You can fail and it doesn't matter. Just don't give a personal guarantee and it'll be fine. Next, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, gentleman in the white shirt. Hi, my name is Greg Drach and um, I'm also a business owner. Um, what I'm interested in is why the UK is so, in terms of entrepreneurship, is so behind the United States. I mean, is it access to the capital? Is it the, um, uh, the attitude towards risk and failures? Is it, are these the consequences of failing in the UK um, or going bankrupt? Um, what would, in your opinion, be the main reason? Yeah. 
Uh, I think it is. It is fear of failure. I mean, you know, in the UK, we're just more worried about failure. But in America, I mean, we, uh, Charles Street has got a big business in America. We, we, we work over there. And um, they, just, they just embrace it a lot more. If you fail, you just get up and do it again. And you learn from your mistakes. You know, they just have a much more entrepreneurial environment um, that, I think, you know, drives their economy. You know, their economy is still two and a half times bigger than China. And part of that is because they just go out there and do it. And, uh, and I think just, just going back to the other thing about, uh, you know, if, you, if you're making lots of money, should you give some of it away and so on? Well, I think that's up to the individual. I think as a company, the businesses that I'm in, we would always try and reinvest that money into the business to make it grow to more GDP and create more jobs. I mean, that, 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 that's what we would do with our money. More questions? Neil. Or is time? Uh, Neil Collins. I'd like to ask each one each member of the panel for one single simple policy decision that this government could make to make entrepreneurs' lives easier. And I won't accept get out of the way. Holly. <laughs> I must say I have been very drawn to something I mentioned earlier, which is I know it sounds a very tiny one, which it doesn't sound tiny, but I haven't previously considered its importance, which is around um, because people have said it so many times to me around childcare and business expenses, and I did take on board the earlier point about nannies. Um, so, I would put, I would personally, in terms of changing the entrepreneur enterprise culture in the country, I would put a, and I don't care whether it's Tenor Tycoon or not, although Peter Jones, the founder of Tenor Tycoon, might disagree. I would put a microfinance fund ring fence in every school and college in the country. Very good. Peter? Uh, I would cut tax on money that you invest in a business that makes the business work, and when you sell that business, you can have a bigger slice of the pie. Because, it's, you know, I think the one thing I did read in, in the little document there before we started was that if SMEs are providing 50% of uh, the GDP or whatever it is, then, you know, these, these, we're the people who are going to make the jobs in the future. And so give us more of an incentive to do that by making us get a bit more money at the end of it, which, I mean, you know, most of the money I give us to reinvest in other businesses. Now, maybe not everyone does that, but that's what I've chosen to do, and I think there are a lot of other people like that. I would uh, give a dispensation to companies with, uh, say, under 100 staff to a great many of the more onerous, uh, more onerous employment legislation, because I think that way it would help create jobs. Mm. Uh, but I think I'm a retailer, so basically right now in this economic crisis, what I can include, so I think, so I'm not quite sure how that, like, uh, you know, makes my business really wonderful. So I've had a rent freeze for three years. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I probably make Luke Enterprise Minister in the House of Lords. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do I have to actually turn up? <laughs> no, right. I, it, 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 access to venture capital for small, very micro-venture funds. I don't know if this is the same point that Ollie's making. Micro-venture funds with... Very angel capital, effectively. Angel, yeah. I don't, I, don't mind, I don't mind whether it's professional or, 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 or not. But that's sort of quantum. At micro levels, smaller even than most of the most active angels, in places where um, access to risk capital is really, really mm -hmm. difficult to find. So that was not in Oxford and Cambridge. And very, very By the way, I, do, I don't doubt that the organizations are out there. I've noticed when chatting to a lot of people about this, that when I say, where would you go to borrow a thousand pounds 
to start a business or even 500 pounds. They haven't got answers tripping off their tongue that don't involve the high street bank. And, and the micro point is really important because there's, there's lots of talk about this equity gap, this notion that there's a, there's a kind of missing funding bit, as it were, between successful entrepreneurs and larger corporations. And I don't believe that that's true. I think that's where market discipline has a real role. I think it's before things get the chance to get proven at all that the gap is. In other words, bringing more and more people into the, into the risk um, the, 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 into risk financing from scratch that's the key. You are completely right. And in fact, Sam's parents benefited from a garage owner who put four and a half grand into their business for half of it, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he did rather well, but the fact is if he hadn't done it, maybe it would never have started. Yeah. Next question. Captain Pink. Uh, Derek Wyatt, on this um, microfinancing, uh, I, I met Mohammed Yunus last year and we tried to get him to create something here. He's got something tiny in Glasgow, but he came across the FSA and the FSA said any microfinancing bank would be classified as a bank, not a social network or a cooperative. And it killed him, as it were, it killed the concept. So that's what needs to change, is, is the FSA's approach to this. Yes, the great irony is I, I've met several people who've been starting or attempting to banks in recent times, and uh, what the UK unquestionably needs is a great deal more competition in banking, particularly uh, to SMEs. Unfortunately, because of the uh, banking crisis, what the FSA have done is uh, clamped down massively and made it much harder to set up a bank. So that's Government regulators in action, doing the opposite of what they should be doing. Brilliant. Um, next. Now, now the House of Lords is receding as a likelihood. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, lady here. I'm Alice Black. I'm from the Design Museum, a small charity. And it was just a, a comment to say that for me, entrepreneurship is not just starting your own company. Uh, certainly for us, and trying, trying to foster a uh, spirit of entrepreneurship within, within the museum to get everybody in the museum to take ownership and to take risk uh, because as a charity that's the only way that we're going to survive the big challenges that we face. So I welcome more entrepreneurship within that context and, and mentoring. Thank you. Any questions? I want questions. That gentleman, please. Hi, I'm Ito. I run a, a small marketing design business myself. Um, most of the panel have mentioned something about mentoring and the importance of it. I wondered whether you felt there was a lack of people putting them forward, uh, putting themselves forward for mentoring, uh, a lack of entrepreneurs seeking it out, and for those that have experienced it, how difficult entrepreneurs are to mentor, because I imagine they're pretty bloody-minded individuals, and perhaps I'm just talking to myself, but, uh, yeah. Well, in our experience, it's not a supply-side problem. There are lots of very uh, good, impressive, experienced um, uh, people who, who, who want to help. My experience is a demand-side problem, and this is entirely a good and right thing, which is that people doing stuff are too busy to do other stuff, and that generally is a good thing. So the more time they have to be mentored, the less likely they are to be successful. The more time they spend being mentored, and so on. Um, 
Um, well, I kind of, I'm being mentored all the time. Right now I'm being mentored by people. And I make it kind of irresistible. So um, that's my method. But in my own company, I have two people, three people I had, who um, want to start their own businesses. One is a jewelry designer. And I on knocking on her door, saying, come on, sit down, let me see your plan. I can help you. I love my staff. I've got very close relationships with them. But they actually, that idea about mentoring is misinformed. They don't understand the value of it, and they don't actually want to make themselves an imposition to it. And I just think that we've really got to re-educate people the importance of mentoring um, from the demand side, making demands to be mentored. Well, the interesting thing about mentoring, I think, particularly in retail, which is anything I know very much about, is that there have been some very, very successful women, and there's Linda Bennett, Kath Kidston, Sarah Raven, and I've actually worked with all three and, and managed to survive. But um, they are incredibly talented people, um, but no one's ever asked them to help anyone else. So you know, maybe there should be some way of connecting those people with other companies. The other thing, though, is I think there is something about entrepreneurs. I mean. They're quite difficult people sometimes. All and, of them, uh, yeah, all of them maybe. Um, I'm not sure sometimes how good they are at being a mentor. I actually take the approach from the lady earlier on who's saying, talking about structure. They're actually having somebody maybe from a, a bigger company who, who's just got a more structured approach to what you do. Because creative entrepreneurs tend to be a bit kind of all over the place. We'll do this world domination. But actually you really want to get somebody to say, well, no, actually let's focus on what you can be the best in the world at and just do that. Um, but it, yeah, n n nobody's ever asked them as far as I'm aware. I think that the more successful brokering of mentor and mentee relationships could be the single biggest opportunity to drive enterprise culture. Not exaggerating that. I really do, because it comes up again and again and again. And I think that certain networks and organizations have a massive opportunity here, and examples might include the IOD, banks themselves perhaps. The BBA is actually currently working with this to create a mentor portal which will point the way to existing mentoring organizations on the ground where people can go. If you want an online mentor organization like Horses Mouth, already brokered some very interesting um, conversations. On the demand side, the only observation I have is this. Certain programs have come along over time that have made us as Brits feel slightly differently about our bodies or our houses and so on. And whereas we looked in the mirror before and saw something, we look at it again and say, well, maybe there's room for improvement here and so on. So I just wonder what would be the thing that made business owners look at their business and say, yeah, I am enjoying it. It is going well, but actually something's now going to kick my aspiration up a gear and say, this could be a hundred million pound business. And I'm very interested to know what that technique or program might look like. Um, and alongside the brokering, I think that's a single biggest opportunity. Very good. That gentleman there had a question. Well, curiously, I'm just picking up exactly from where you left off, Ollie, um, Sandy Walkington. I was just asking, why do entrepreneurs stop in this country? Because my perception is, is that we get the micro-businesses and even the small businesses. And I've had lots of friends who've built small businesses, and then they sell. And they go off, and they might be entrepreneurial at something else, but it's not making money. Or they might go and ski or sail. And we don't seem to have the kind of Mittelstand that you know, Germany has, or those medium-sized businesses, which is the backbone, with a few large companies, and then the micros that start and then don't seem to go anywhere. And is that cultural or institutional, or what is driving that? I think one of the reasons is that there is a tendency here to want to become a member of the aristocracy. So people 
sell out and become country gentlemen and ladies? Uh, yes, well, that's a different reply. <laughs> Can I say something on that one? I think uh, you, you, you slightly answered the question. I think for me, that culturally a business changes. So, so when you take a business, I mean, it changes all the time, but from 0 to 10, 10 to 20, 10 to 50, you need different people. And what, what, what happened in my experience is that when, when those people get to that sort of size of business, it ceases actually to be an entrepreneurial business anymore. It actually becomes a process business. And you get professional managers in to manage those businesses. Uh, and so if you take Cascades uh, for now, which again, we'll, we'll do about 100 million in the next year. So I'm not, I chose to leave because it was becoming a business that was no longer entrepreneurial. I, th I think you can keep a business entrepreneurial, but it's bloody hard, but it's become a process-driven business. So you're bringing in professional managers to manage those businesses. I actually do work in a German middle company, uh, I suppose it's a 270 million euro business. So one that's family-owned has been entrepreneurial, but it's now so stagnant. You know, they want to grow by 3.5% next year, and they think that's great. I think it's shit. Um, so I go in there, and you know, in English, because I don't speak any German, I'm explaining it. I don't use those words, but you know, it's so hard to get them to change. You know, they really don't have much entrepreneurial spirit in Germany, whereas in America, they can be very different. Definitely. What do you think? Well, I mean, I, I kind of buy this, you know, country country, retire to the country and, and pretend you have nothing to do with trade argument. I also think it has something to do with the big international institutions and their M&A um, incentives, um, which tends to mean internationalization, which tends to mean large international acquirers for, you know, hungry for IP or earlier stage organizations. So I suspect that plays a role as well. Next question. Gentlemen over there. Hi, I'm Graham Hitchin. Um, I wanted to ask a question about um, whether there's a difference between um, being entrepreneurial and growing, which picks up to some extent on that last point. Uh, and I'm going to reference it with a specific reference to one of the fastest growing sectors and one of the biggest sectors in our economy, which is the creative industries, where data suggests that actually we're very, very good as a sector. The creative businesses are very, very good as a sector at startup stage. And there are a very, very large number of small and medium-sized businesses that do extremely well across a whole series of sectors. But actually, there are very, very few indeed major corporate companies you know, of significant size in creative and digital sector. They are primarily American. And there's a real sense that the gap that exists is that the UK is a sense that we're very enterprising, but we don't know how to grow companies. I would just be interested in um, people's comments on that. Yeah, okay. I, mean, I think there's a big difference between a creative business. Uh, I had a friend who ran a design agency, got it up to 50 people, credit crunch came, and you know, he just had to let everyone go. I mean, I think in a creative business, it's all about the people. You know, if you're selling a product, you can just keep on going, but you have to get great people in all the time. And I think you know, if, you, if you're in a design <coughs> agency, You've got to get the next group of people who can take you to the next level. And I've never worked in one, but I'm talking to my friend, you know, it's just an awful lot harder. To take the point about when's you know, entrepreneurial versus growing, you know, it just gets to a stage where an entrepreneurial business, to get to the next stage of growth, would appear to be, you just need different types of people. And, and they are process-driven meeting type people. And, and it's not great. I mean, we, we have notices on our, on our, on our doors saying, you know, First of all, no meetings, but if you have to have one, no longer than two hours. 
You know, so that, that is the culture that I like to have in the business. But now that I've gone, I know people ring up and say, God, we're just in bloody meetings. They're having three-hour meetings. Exactly, three-hour meetings and, you know, saying what a, you know, what a pillock I was. But, you know, it, it, it's a difficult one. It's a very difficult one. Well, I mean, I don't know. It depends what we mean by creative businesses. I mean, I suspect also the presence of a, um, a, state, uh, a state sector in the arts and creatives industries has some bearing on your on the answer to your question. The so presence, it's BBC's fault. The presence of the... <laughs> no, 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 I wouldn't say it's fault, but I think that the, the ecology in which these things happen includes large state organisations. So that probably has something to do with it too. Yeah, and I'm not sure I entirely agree with you anyhow. I know if it's just today in the paper, for example, it said that we export more than 10 times as much uh, TV programming as the French do. We <laughs> so I think we do pretty well in the lots of areas of the uh, creative industries, actually. Two very brief observations. The thing that tends to get put under the microscope and have thousands of articles and programs made about them is the entrepreneur, is the individual. And I don't think enough, I'm sure a lot of research does get done, um, but I don't think enough cuts through about a team that actually made things successful. And that's kind of what fascinates me. And having traveled to San Francisco with almost 80 companies now, the thing I come back thinking about so many of them is that they are so driven and they're inventors and mavericks. And what they need so much is their right-hand man or woman to take them onto that next stage. So I have a thing in this country that we don't take the business of connecting um, seriously enough. And it seems to me that if we took that a bit more seriously and analyzed teams under the microscope a bit more and put those stories out there, um, then maybe that would change a little bit. Very good. Uh, lady over there. I just wonder if the panel thinks that programs like The Apprentice and Dragon's Den are a help or a hindrance to uh, fostering an entrepreneurial culture. I just want to tell a story. <laughs> I was on a panel like this recently with uh, the founder, so New York Pants, of Lush. And uh, I knew it was going to be a good panel because as he came up, he, he said to me, he said, can I offer you some toilet paper? And he had this toilet paper, which I guess he'd had specially done with pictures of Lord Sugar on. Panels you, Stephen. Honestly, I think that The Apprentice is brilliant entertainment, but I think it's a depressing view of organizational culture and, and business and lowers our collective IQ. That's my personal view. So you're obviously a fan. I'm a big fan. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't actually watch, I don't, I've never watched it. And I've never, I don't watch TV. You don't watch television? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I would, I would agree with Stefan. I mean, Prince is good TV, but it's absolute rubbish. Um, and, and The Dragon's Den, uh, again, it's, it's, it's more about television. I mean, it's, it's, you know, just, you know, I mean, a friend of mine did go on, actually, and, and did he had an absolute rubbish product, but they wanted to back him. And he said, no, more for him. But um, I, I just think it gives the wrong impression. It also, I think, on The Apprentice, you know, it, it also accentuates this thing about how, you know, it, getting rich quick and, you know, getting that job and all you have to do is go through 12 programs. I mean, actually, being an entrepreneur, starting in the middle, it's bloody hard work. But it's stressful, but it's great fun. And I think it just gives the wrong impression. Ollie, don't you work with one of the dragons? Yeah, I do. Yeah, and he, he is a massively inspirational guy, by the way. Peter Jones, who has invested millions of his own cash in education, as it happens. Um, I, I massively enjoy Dragon's Den and The Apprentice. Um, uh, 
they're not an accurate reflection probably of business unless your idea of business is being shouted at by a Maltese hairdresser. Um, <laughs> having said that, um, you know, they get people talking, don't they? That's led to a question today and we all talk and when you go into schools, they do know these characters and they relate to them in, in some form. I think the thing to talk about is why there is such a dire lack of pretty much anything else on our screens, in particular on the BBC. Both those programs are on the BBC. Well, in particular then, um, the BBC needs more to represent what business is actually like. In Channel 4, by the way, Lee, why didn't you do more there? You know, what, they, what? Never they never listen. They never listen. But I do, I do think there's a massive opportunity, particularly when it comes to representing businesses' ability to make a difference. And there's a massive gaping void for an ITV or someone to step into that space. Last question, that lady down. Hi, Sylvia Barrett from London Chamber. Um, on the topic of um, programs, I was going to say that um, I think that programs like that um, do a good job at increasing aw sorry, awareness about business uh, and enterprise, but they do create the wrong idea of what it's like. Um, and um, obviously, p uh, young people that, whose parents are entrepreneurs, they will know what it's really like, but for um, young people that do not have this influence or role models, um, is young for having enterprise champions in, champions in schools, uh, is young for having um, role models of business people and entrepreneurs going in schools and doing visits, for example? Yeah, I mean, massively. What young people want to see is someone that they... People like you. No. Someone that they can imagine. Um, that they can relate to. And, and so that's why I would say don't delay. Don't say, I'll wait until I've got a few million quid in the bank before I do that return journey back to my old school. I'd say definitely don't delay. Coming back on a serious point about Dragon's Den, the biggest misconception in my view that it creates in people's minds is that you need a big stack of 50 pound notes yeah. this high to start a business. And I think that, if misinterpreted, could be a very, very damaging thing. The other misconception is that too much of entrepreneurship is associated with the financing of entrepreneurial ventures. So at the, at, the, at, the, at the business school level, students believe that entrepreneurial success is being invested in. Mm. Now, obviously, that's not true, but that's what everyone believes. So it's become synonymous with capital, with venture capital, with, with investor pitches, all of that kind of stuff, rather than the more haphazard, complicated, selling product, difficult, generating revenue. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Well. Um, Ollie, Peter, Sam, and Stephen, thank you very much, and thank you all for your questions.